Uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're preaching through the books of Samuel, passage by passage. And this week we come to the end of chapter 7, verses 18 to 29, where we find David in prayer. It's a moving passage, as you'll hear in just a moment. And it's also an important passage, for it reminds us how God's people ought to respond to God's grace. So, let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 18 of 2 Samuel 7. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people, making a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt a nation and its gods. And you have established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you... O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Would you pray with me and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. Father, we do join our voices with that of David to say that you alone are God. There is no one beside you. All that we have heard with our ears, Father, we know to be true, for it's come to us in Your Word. And Your Word is true, for You are God. And You can only speak and say things that are true and right and good. And so, Father, we marvel at the fact that You would reveal Yourself to Your people. And we pray, God, that You would grant us ears this morning to hear and a heart to believe. By nature, Father, our Our hearts and our minds work against Your Word. We don't want to believe them. We find it hard to believe what You have said. We find it hard to see Your grace and Your mercy. So we ask, Father, for just that, for grace and mercy, 
to believe you. Remind us that you are God and therefore your words are true. And give us a heart to believe. Father, keep me from error. Help the things that I say to be faithful to what you have said. Your people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So help my words to be faithful to your words. And grant us, God, discernment that we would hold fast to the truth until the day that the Lord Jesus returns. And we do pray, God, that it would be soon. And we pray in His name. Amen. There's a story told about the renowned missionary Hudson Taylor that captures well the theme of this passage. Hudson Taylor, you might know, was a missionary to China. And his ministry there was instrumental in establishing a vibrant gospel ministry in that country when when there really was none. Some years later, after Hudson Taylor's time in China, he was invited to speak at a sizable church in Australia. And before his address, the minister of the church gave Mr. Taylor a rather lengthy introduction. He went on for some time about Taylor's accomplishments and his ministry and how much he had done great things for God. And then at the conclusion, the minister presented Taylor as, quote, our illustrious guest. And the crowd applauded, of course, because that's what you're supposed to do. But Hudson Taylor stood there quietly behind the podium on the platform for a long moment. He was just quiet. And then Taylor, the supposedly illustrious guest, said this. He said, Dear friends, I am but the little servant of an illustrious God. That humble confession from Hudson Taylor displays the same attitude we find from David in our passage today. As great as David is and will become, he is simply the servant of an illustrious God. In fact, as you read through this passage, one of the features that should get your attention is David's frequent use of that word, servant. Did you catch it when we read? Ten times, David refers to himself not as the king, but as the Lord's servant. On some level, that's the key to the passage. What should stand out about David's life is not the king's greatness. He's only a servant. What should stand out is David's illustrious, magnificent God. And you can see this humble attitude even in the way that the chapter is structured. Notice that David's prayer comes only in response to God's promise that began the chapter. You may remember from last week that chapter 7 opened with David's desire to build God a house, a temple for God's presence to dwell on earth. But in His grace, God told David no. Sometimes God's grace tells us no. God told David, no, you won't build me a house. I will build you a house. A dynasty that will endure forever, even to the end of the age. That promise is what we call the Davidic covenant. And as we noted last week, that promise was rooted entirely in God's grace. David didn't initiate the covenant with God. He didn't ask for the covenant. And he certainly didn't deserve the covenant. It was all of grace. And now, as we come to verse 18, we find David's response, and it's really quite striking. Having received God's grace, what will David do? What does he do in response? Well, he doesn't offer a thousand sacrifices on the altar of the Lord. He doesn't boast of his ability to keep the covenant. He doesn't even issue a royal proclamation declaring how great his house will be. He doesn't do any of those things. Quite simply, David worships and he prays. 
I mean, you see it there at the outset, verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He just sits down in God's presence. And it's actually a very moving, very instructive picture. God bestowed grace, and that grace prompts David to come in and do the only thing that you can do when you receive God's grace. Worship. Praise. Bow before God. God initiates and gives grace. His people respond with praise and worship through faith. It's really how the Christian life moves here in summary. God gives, we receive, we give back praise. It's really the heart of the passage. For all of his significance, what is David ultimately? What is he? Only a servant whose life points us to an illustrious God. As we look now to the details of the text, you can break David's response down into three different parts. It's one sustained prayer, but there are three distinct elements. And each one gives us a glimpse, a different glimpse of our illustrious covenant-keeping God. The first element comes in verses 18-22 to as David rejoices in God's grace. David rejoices in God's grace. Now, I have the difficult task here of trying to use words to express the fact that David is at a loss for words. I mean, did you catch that in verse 20? Look, look there again. Verse 20 sum, sums up David's attitude in the whole section. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. David doesn't really know what to say and who can blame him. God promised him an eternal throne in an eternal kingdom. What would you say in response to that? I mean, our minds struggle to fathom even the concept of eternity abstractly. So imagine receiving from God a personal promise that has eternity in it for you. What do you say to that? Well, in a very real sense, you say nothing. You're just awestruck by the grace of God. And David's response bears this out. Starting in verse 18, David rehearses God's grace a number of different times. He can't get past it. He just keeps going over it, over and over and over, each time from a different perspective, but he can't go, he can't go on. I mean, you can trace it out there in the text. Notice with me how David is just joyfully astounded by the extent of God's grace. First off, God re- David rejoices in God's present grace. Notice the first words in verse 18. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Why has David gone from tending sheep out in the countryside to sitting on Israel's throne? Why has he traded in smelly shepherd's clothes for royal robes? Why? Because the Lord in His grace has brought David this far. And in response, all David can say is, is, Who who am I, God? Who am I that You would do this for me? You see, God's grace causes David to see himself rightly. There's no boasting here. There's no exalting himself above others. This is remarkable, friends. Remember, David is the king. He lives in a palace. He's surrounded by servants. And now David knows that his line will last forever. I mean, that sounds like a recipe for pride to me. And yet, what do we find with David? Not pride, but praise. Not boasting, but rejoicing. What room is there for boasting when you know that you live by grace alone? 
David is who he is only because of the Lord's work in his life. He rejoices in God's present grace. Along with that, David also rejoices in God's future grace. Look at verse 19. And notice the emphasis on what God will do. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. So God's present grace has been amazing to David, and yet what's to come will be even greater. That's David's point. All that God has done is but a small thing compared to what God will do. In His grace, God will establish David's throne forever. And David is simply stunned at the prospect. He's just stunned. Before we go on, notice that phrase at the end of verse 19. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. That's a hard phrase to understand. And if you read various English translations, you'll notice a number of different options. I take the best option to be the one that maintains the emphasis on God's future grace, but with a global emphasis. David understands that his kingship will be a means of grace not only for Israel, but for all of humanity. Remember friends, from the very beginning, God's purpose has been to redeem a people for Himself, and then through that people, to spread the blessing of His presence across all the earth. That's been God's plan from the beginning. Remember the promise to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, I will bless you and make your name great, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now here in 2 Samuel, David understands that that same promise will be fulfilled through his family line. In other words, God's future grace is not just for David and David's family, but it's for all the families of the earth, all the peoples of the earth. So again, just to help you read your Bible a little bit better, I hope, notice how God's redemptive plan is zeroing in on one person. One person. A Davidic king. And through that king, all the promises will come to pass. Sometimes you'll hear people say that Christians misuse the Old Testament because we read Jesus back into it. No. Wrong. He's right here. David is telling you there's a Messiah coming. David may not know that that's what he's saying, but that's what David's saying through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is instruction for mankind, David says. In other words, there's a Messiah coming. And all that God said to Abraham, and all that God said to Israel, and all that God said to David is going to come to pass in that man. It's zeroing in on one person, a Davidic king. And already David himself rejoices in that future grace. Still, David's joy is not finished. In verse 21, David rejoices in what we could call absolute grace. Notice again what David says, and listen for how, how absolute, how extensive the grace of God has been. Verse 21, because of your promise, and according to your heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Friends, do you, do you hear how God is at the center of that verse? Whose promise? Your promise, David says. By whose desire and whose plan? By according to your heart, David says, and who carried it out. You have brought it about, David proclaims. Your promise, according to your heart, you have done it. You see, from start to finish, this is all God's work. The purpose originated 
in God's heart. It was declared through God's promise. And it has come about through God's work from desire to declaration to realization. God has absolutely done this. And He's done it by His grace. All of this then leads David in verse 22 to the only right response. This is the only thing that you can do when you taste of God's grace. And that response is to glorify God. Notice how David sums it up in verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard, from, uh, heard with our ears. If you've ever wondered why God is gracious, friends, here's the answer. It's because God's grace supremely reveals God's glory. And the connection here is so clear. God gave grace to David, and David in turn gives glory to God. God gives grace so that we might give Him the glory. Do you see the purpose of grace, friends? The purpose of grace is the glory of God. It was true in David's life, and it remains true for God's people today. We receive the blessing, God receives the praise. We get to enjoy the promise, God receives the glory. That's how He's glorified when His people are satisfied in the grace that He's given. Present grace, future grace, and now absolute grace. David is awestruck by what God has done. He can't get past it. It takes him five verses just to say, praise God. And, and through it all, through all five verses, there's one attitude that stands out in each verse. And that attitude is humility. Humility. David is not simply awestruck by God's grace, he's humbled by it as well. We mentioned it earlier, but it's worth repeating again. God's grace causes David to see himself rightly. God's grace causes David to see himself rightly. Friends, I take this to be the primary application for us. David reminds us that those who truly understand God's grace should be the most humble people of all. Verse 18 should be the confession of every Christian. Who am I, O Lord God? Who am I that You would give Your Son to stand in my place and pay the debt that I owed? Who am I that You would awaken my dead heart and give me faith in Christ? Who am I that while I was content in my hatred of You, You would pursue me and give me the grace without which I would never have come to You? Who am I? Of all people, friends, we should be the most humble on earth. For we know that all we are and all we have owes entirely to God's grace. <clears throat> so let me just speak directly to our church for just a moment. I know here at Midtown Baptist we rejoice in God's sovereign grace and we're unashamed in our declaration that salvation begins and ends entirely with the gracious God. Amen? Amen. But at the same time, I hope we also remember that our commitment to God's grace is not measured in how many arguments we win or how many points we may have. Our commitment to God's grace is always measured by the degree to which humility marks our attitudes and actions. In our quickness to serve. In our quickness to bear with a wrong. 
and our quickness to be willing to be misunderstood for the good of another. It's not measured by how many arguments or how many points. It's measured by the depth of humility that marks our attitudes and actions. In fact, this is how God's grace brings glory to God's name because it humbles us. It humbles us and leads us to confess that all we are and all we have comes only from God. This is why a boastful Christian is such a tragedy. Such a person misunderstands who he is and misrepresents who God is. When I'm humbled by God's grace, God is glorified as the one who gives all grace and meets needy people like me and gives them what they can never earn on their own. So, do we want to make much of God's grace, brothers and sisters? Do we want to put God on display as the God who gives grace? Yes, we do. Then we have to join David in this kind of humility. David rejoices in God's grace. And I pray that we would do the same. That we would join him in that happy, humble confession that magnifies the Lord. The second feature of David's response comes in verses 23 and 24. David praises God's faithfulness. David praises God's faithfulness. Now you might notice there seems to be a rather abrupt shift in verse 23. Look again there at the text and you can see it. David has been rejoicing in God's grace, verses 18 to 22. But then with little transition, with little warning, David begins speaking about God's people, verse 23. So you see it there? Verse 22, who is like the Lord? And then verse 23, who is like your people Israel? It seems rather abrupt. So what is David getting at? Why move from the Lord to Israel? Why make that shift? Well, actually, friends, David's shift is not as abrupt as it might first appear. It's true, David focuses on Israel in these two verses, but he does so because of what Israel's life reveals about God. You see, Israel was certainly unique among the Old Testament peoples of the world. If you read the Old Testament, you understand this quite well. It was Israel whom God chose to be His people, and it was to Israel that God revealed His law. What's more, redemptive history is played out largely through Israel's history. Think of what the Apostle Paul would write centuries later in Romans 9. To them, that is to to Israel, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So from Old Testament to New, it's clear Israel occupies a unique role in redemptive history. And that's what David is emphasizing at this point. But here's the key. Israel's unique identity was ultimately about revealing the character and glory of God. You see, just like David the king, Israel's position as a nation is not so much about the nation as it is about God. It's the same dynamic. Not so much about David, it's about the Lord. Not so much about the people, it's about their God. Israel's unique identity reveals the truth about the triune God. And that's what we see here in verses 23 and 24. By shifting his focus to Israel, David is actually continuing his praise of God. And specifically, it's the Lord's faithfulness that gets David's attention. Notice how this plays out in in the passage. David highlights God's faithfulness in two clear steps. First of all, David praises God's faithfulness to redeem. Notice how quickly David zeroes in on 
God's redemption of Israel. Verse 23. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people? So David recalls Israel's exodus from Egypt when God utterly humiliated Pharaoh and Egypt's gods in order to deliver His people from bondage. Now, what's interesting is that the exodus was technically not the first moment in Israel's history. That would be the calling of Abraham. That's the first moment. So the exodus is not the first moment per se, but it's the first moment that David thinks of. Why? Because Israel's exodus so clearly shows what God is like. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God declares Himself to be, Exodus 34. This is God. Merciful and gracious. But where in the Old Testament do we see that truth most clearly? In the Exodus from Egypt. As the merciful God graciously redeems His people from a bondage they could never escape. In fact, this is why the Old Testament so often presents the Exodus as the central moment of Israel's history. Because of all the events of Israel's life, it was the Exodus that put God most on display. It was the Exodus that showed God to be merciful and gracious. That's why David starts with the Exodus as well. He's praising God's faithfulness to redeem. God doesn't have to drum up the desire to be gracious. It's part and parcel of His nature. His faithfulness to save people who could not save themselves. That's what David is getting at here. Along with redemption, David also praises God's faithfulness to keep. His faithfulness to redeem and His faithfulness to keep. Look at verse 24 and notice the emphasis on preservation, on keeping. And you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Again, David emphasizes that Israel belongs to the Lord. God established them as His people. He has become their God. But not only has God established them, He also keeps them. That word forever is the key. It's the same word God used earlier to describe David's throne and David's kingdom. How long will David's kingdom endure? Forever. How long will God keep His people? Forever. It's the same word. So do you see the connection? God's promise to David causes David to reflect on God's promise to His people. Promise to David leads the king to think about God's promise to His people. And the two are not unrelated. In fact, David is bringing them together. This is how God will keep His people Israel forever. He will keep them through a king. Again, redemptive history is zeroing in on one person. A Messiah. A king in David's line. And what we need to understand, friends, is that God's faithfulness throughout Israel's history is meant to be an encouragement to you today. I know that we're separated from the Old Testament by thousands of years. And I know there are a host of questions about how Old Testament Israel relates to the New Testament church. But through all that time, and amidst all those questions, I hope we never lose sight of the truth that the God of the Bible is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The faithful God He has been is the faithful God He will be. 
And, and I'm, not, I'm not making this up. This isn't just religious-sounding self-help talk. This is the good news of the Gospel that the faithful God of Israel's history has taken on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. This is central to the reason why we're saved. We must not miss this. The Gospel declares to you that the God of the Exodus is your God in Christ Jesus. The Gospel declares to you that the God who kept Israel is the God who keeps you by His Spirit. He's the same God. Do you see it, friends? At the cross, Jesus accomplished a redemption far greater than the Exodus. He shed His blood to save God's people once and for all. And at His resurrection, Jesus secured an eternal preservation for God's people. Since death has been defeated, there's nothing that could ever snatch God's people from His hand. Forever, God will keep those who are redeemed by Christ's blood and united to Christ by faith. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Please do not miss this. If you belong to Christ, then David's testimony of God's faithfulness is your testimony as well. The God of the Exodus is your God. To know Christ by faith is to know the faithful God. From Israel's Exodus to the Lord Jesus' cross, This is our God. He is faithful to redeem. He is faithful to keep. And therefore, may we like David give him our praise. David praises God's faithfulness. That brings us then to verses 25 to 29 in the final aspect of David's response. David stands on God's word. David stands on God's word. Starting in verse 25, David switches from praise to petition. Having praised God for who He is, David now makes his request known to the Lord. Don't don't miss that progression, friends. Prayer that honors God begins first with the Lord's character and then moves to our needs. David praises God first and only then does he move to petition God. Now, what should get our attention here is how David grounds his petition in God's Word. It's very instructive. David's requests are built solely on what God has said. You can see this throughout the section. Beginning, middle, and end. Notice it with me. It begins in verse 25. David prays, And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that You have spoken concerning Your servant and concerning his house, and do as You have spoken. Twice, David mentions the word that God has spoken. You see, it's God's word that enables David to make his request known to the Lord. This becomes even clearer in the middle. Verse 27, again, David prays, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Friends, don't miss that word, therefore, in the middle of the verse. How has David found the courage to pray like this? Because God in His grace first revealed the promise to him. First comes the promise, then comes the prayer. David's not being presumptive. He's simply praying God's Word back to the Lord. It carries on to the end. Notice the last verse, verse 29. Now therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever 
before you. Why can David ask for that? I mean, that's a massive request. Eternal blessing. Why does David have the right to make that request? For you, O Lord God, have spoken. That's why. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Friends, I'm belaboring this point because the Lord means to encourage us here. If you're anything like me, you're probably often discouraged by how you pray. I don't pray enough. And when I do pray, I don't really know what to say. And then perhaps you read a a prayer like this one and you get more discouraged. I mean, compared to David, my prayers seem awfully anemic and pitiful. Here's where the encouragement comes in. David's prayer, which is passionate and powerful, David's prayer is not something he conjures up on his own. David is not just better at praying than you. It's not that David is more fervent than you. That's not it at all. David's prayer is so passionate and powerful because it's built on God's Word. All David is doing here is taking God's promise and just praying it back to him. Beginning, middle, and end. David really only has one thing to say. Do what you've promised, God. Keep your Word, God. You see, it's God's Word that both prompts and sustains the prayers of God's people That's what God is teaching us here through David. As we meditate on God's promises given to us in God's Word, those same promises then empower us to pray. Those same promises give us the passion and the prayer we lack on our own. Too often, friends, our prayers are so anemic because we're neglecting the fuel God has provided in His Word. It's like trying to drive a car with an empty gas tank. Of course it's silly and feels powerless. There's nothing in there. We've forgotten the fuel. So the way we grow in prayer, particularly the kind of prayer we see from David, the way we grow is not by looking inward to our own hearts and minds. Hardly anything good in the Christian life happens inside of you first. Just bad things. We don't grow in prayer by looking inward. We grow in prayer by looking outward. Looking outward to what God has already said in His Word. Friends, this is one of the reasons God has given us His Word in written form. So we can read it and meditate on it and then pray it back to Him. It's the Word of God that fuels the prayers of the people of God. Let me just give you a couple of examples of what I'm saying just to illustrate God's kindness in making this so applicable. Let me give you two examples. They both come from the same book. There's 66 books in the Bible, so we're only talking about one. you got 64, 65 more places. See how bad I am at math? I just said 66 minus 1. That's why I'm a preacher. So I don't balance our checkbook either. Because we would live in this room. Let me just give you two examples. They both come from the same book. Philippians 1.6, one of the most precious promises in the New Testament. And I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. One of the most precious promises in the New Testament. That's a promise from God that He will not leave His people to themselves. He will finish what He started. So this week, you wake up. You're confronted with the fact that as of that moment right then, you're a pretty lousy Christian. What do you pray? You pray Philippians 1.6. You say, Father, I don't see much good work today, but I trust Your Word. You've promised to finish what You start. 
So would you make me more like Christ in my attitudes and actions, just as your word said? You see, it's a simple prayer, but it's built on God's word. And therefore, it comes with a kind of passion and purpose and power that we could never generate on our own. Or take Philippians 4.19, for example. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise of God's faithful provision. So that next unexpected medical bill hits the mailbox this week. And you think, there's just no, there's just no, way, there's just no way we're getting out of this. There's, there's just no way this is coming together. I, I, I don't see a way. What do you do? You pray. Father, I don't see how these needs will be met. I don't see a way forward. But Your Word promises that You will supply all of our needs. Not our wants, but all of our needs. And so I trust You and I ask You to give us what we need. Amen. You see, again, my prayer takes on a fresh confidence because it's rooted in what God has already promised in His Word. Don't try to drive the car without gas in the tank. Go to God's Word. Friends, do you see the kindness of God here? I I love that. God doesn't simply command us to pray and then sit there in heaven with His arms crossed and a furrowed brow saying, you better get to it. He commands us to pray and then He equips us with the words to do so. What a kind Heavenly Father. What a kind God. By the way, this whole idea that your prayers have to be uh, spontaneous, that's not in the Bible. You can spend the rest of your life praying the Bible back to God and He would be well pleased and you would be well served. This is the kindness of God. He doesn't just say pray and then leave us to get to it. He says pray and let me give you what you need to say. That's why David's prayer is so helpful. Not because it points us to David, but because it points us to a kind Heavenly Father who's given us His words that we might pray even when we don't know what to pray. David stands on God's Word, and I pray you've been encouraged to do the same. Well, ten times David the king refers to himself not as the king, but as the Lord's servant. It really is the key to the passage. Here we have David fresh off receiving the unspeakable promises of the Davidic covenant. And what do we find David doing? Not basking in his own significance, but praising his illustrious God. Rejoicing in God's grace, praising God's faithfulness, standing on God's Word. That's David's testimony. And I pray it will be our testimony as well, to the glory of God's great name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love You.